0: Uh, Mark chapter 2 to 3, verse 6. Let's listen to God's words to us. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins if he does. The wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any, but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Now, this is God's words to us. Now, uh, back in the the 90s, um, some of you may know it, there's a TV show called Keeping Up Appearances. Um, It was about a lady Called, um, Hyacinth Bucket, if you remember, who tried to present herself as someone who was upper class. Uh, she actually called her, renamed herself Bouquet. Um, and, and, talked with the, the, the poshest accent, uh, she could. If you remember, she, Richard! That was her husband. And, uh, it was this, it was the great show. Uh, and it was, it was this kind of great show of hers to show, uh, all the neighbors that she was different. Uh, when in fact she was just really uh, like them and life can feel a a little bit like that kind of keeping up appearances we we try we try and look sorted look like it's all okay we we say the right things we we do the right things we can uh and we can do that either to to hide the mess we're feeling deep down or or perhaps because we haven't realized that there's a bit of a mess uh, deep down, but it's exhausting, isn't it? It's exhausting to uh, to keep up appearances, and here in Mark's gospel, God has God has got some glorious balm for our souls. He He points us beyond our front, our our facade, and shows us really where we can find rest, uh, rest now, and rest uh, for eternity. So come with me into these uh, next few verses of Mark. Now we're in Mark, we're in this, this middle, actually, of five little confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders. It started at the beginning of chapter 2. Uh, last week, if you remember, Jesus was accused of blasphemy as he forgave sin. He was then uh, accused of compromise as he, uh, as he hang, hung out with the sinners and tax collectors. And now Mark gives us three more little incidences. I don't know. And it, and it starts to heat up. Uh, so first, we're going we're gonna to build a picture of who uh, Jesus of what Jesus says about himself, and it's a glorious picture of who he is. It really is, and what he's come to do. Um, it's quite a ride. And, and then second, we'll take a closer look at these guys who are confronting Jesus, and, and we'll let them shine a light on our hearts. So let's get into these uh, three little stories to see see more of who uh, Jesus is. So this first story, verses 18 to 22, and there's this contrast has arisen, if you remember, between Jesus' disciples and the other disciples around. Here, John the Baptist and the Pharisees, both of these had been fasting. Now, we're not told why they're fasting. Is it a general comment, theirs are known to fast, yours are not? Or, or perhaps it's a specific comment um, uh, they're actually fasting right now. You know, John the Baptist's disciples may be fasting because John was in prison. Uh, the Pharisees were known to fast a couple of times a week. Was it, was it one of those? But the key thing here is Jesus' disciples weren't, and people expected them to. Now, fasting was used for a number of different reasons in that kind of culture. It's particularly related to death and mourning. Um, in your in your grief, you refrained from food. It's kind of an expression of that grief. And and then that linked on quite naturally to, to fasting because of sin, mourning the, the death-like nature of sin and what it did. Uh, in Scripture, we see it particularly linked to the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. But Jesus comes out with an astonishing response in this uh, thing about fasting. Have a look with me at verse 19. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Okay, He's saying for his disciples right now, uh, to, for them to fast right now is as ridiculous as it would be to fast at a wedding banquet. Okay, A wedding is a time of joy and celebration, isn't it? It's, it's party time um just imagine a wedding banquet uh, and people sit down at the tables and it's all beautifully uh, laid out there's nice cutlery there's wine glasses people are chatting they're meeting old friends they're they're making new ones and and then the best man stands up he stands up to a microphone and he announces that no food is coming out um we're all gonna mourn and fast a funeral dirge is going to be played uh, quietly in the background Okay, it be no sense. It's ridiculous. It's it's wrong. And why will Jesus' reason? It's because the bridegroom is here is there. The disciples can be joyful, they're not mourning or fasting. Why? Because Jesus is there. He's he's like a big sign saying to them, It's wedding time, it's celebration time. And to call himself the bridegroom, well, in the old testament. God himself, the Lord, Yahweh, he's the bridegroom. We see that in Hosea, we see it in Isaiah and Jeremiah and elsewhere. He's saying, why fast if the Lord is with you? Why mourn when the author of life and love is with you? How can you focus on death when someone so glorious is here? And, and it's a phrase not only that speaks of God's care in the past, but it always also points forward. It's forward to the marriage feast that lasts forever. It's Jesus hinting at it. He hints at it when he talks about the bridegroom being taken away as he dies. If he's taken away, then he's coming back again. If, if there's ever a time that marks the end of mourning and fasting and sin, surely it's the final resurrection of the dead, Surely it's the final wedding supper of the Lamb and his bride. The bridegroom is here, the God of life. And that's why he talks about this, this problem of new and old. You may have been a little confused. It's, it's confusing on first reading, isn't it? This new piece of cloth tearing away uh, when you put an, uh, on an old one, an old wineskin ruined when you put new wine in. He's not He's not saying, chuck out the old whole old testament i mean that would completely contradict his term of use, bridegroom and what we've what i talked about with the children of, of the time has come no but he's saying the the old way of doing things the old practices the old ceremonies perhaps fastings of the old testament like the day of atonement they they pointed to our need of a savior but the new has come the bridegroom has arrived, the Savior, the God of life who's bringing eternal life. He's here. It's changed. The, the disciples of John and the Pharisees need to see a new era has dawned. He's the bridegroom. But it keeps going, okay? Let's move on. Verses 23 to 28. Okay, here we get another moment of friction. Okay, this time it's an, it's an accusation that Jesus' disciples are doing something unlawful. Do you, do you see that? In verse 23... Uh, they're picking ears of corn in a cornfield. Now it's not what they're doing that's necessarily the problem, it's when. Okay, it's the Sabbath, the day of rest from work. And perhaps the Pharisees think this is actual work. What they're doing is they're, they're reaping, they're threshing, they're winnowing, or all there in that action. And that's why there's a problem. Now again, Jesus' response is strange. Okay, it's a little strange as you read it. He doesn't go for the presenting issue. Okay? He doesn't discuss the Pharisees' laws and their customs and how they relate uh, perhaps to the Old Testament law in the Bible. He, he doesn't, at this point, even discuss the Sabbath. No, he goes back to this strange incident with David. Back in 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel. Um, David's on the run. He, he goes uh, to the tabernacle and he's given some consecrated bread. Now, the thing about this bread is it says that it was only meant to be eaten by priests. So David sit, did something that was, if thought strictly, it was unlawful. So what's going on? Why does Jesus use this? Is he just getting rid of the law? Uh, now, this is a bit tricky, okay? But there are, there are two parts, I think, to Jesus' answer. Okay, Firstly, he's correcting their misunderstanding of the law. And secondly, he's correcting their misunderstanding of him. Okay, we'll take those in turn. First, Jesus is not getting rid of the law. Okay, he's perfect before it. Back in chapter one, if you remember, he made sure the leper went to the temple and fulfilled the law. Now, instead, he's showing us something about the law. Okay, David needed food. And so did his companions. The the law isn't there to cause harm to people. Food was needed. The law is good. That's what Jesus is saying. And Jesus then makes this really clear when he turns the conversation back to the Sabbath. If you look at verse 27, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In in other words, the Sabbath law isn't a law to be a burden. It's meant... Uh, it isn't meant to make the Sabbath more important than people. No, the law is holy. The law is good for people. The this Sabbath law to rest from work, to worship the law, it's there for our good. It's to remind us of creation and God's provision. It's to grow trust and give time for rest. That uh, God gave the law for our good. It's a gift from him. So the Pharisees have completely misunderstood the law. And we'll come back to that uh, later. But they'd also misunderstood him, which Jesus corrects. Jesus picks an example with David. That's no accident. David is the great king who is able to do something that seemed unlawful. That's who Jesus is putting himself alongside. Do you notice it's, it's David and his companions, and it's Jesus and his disciples. It's the son of David with his disciples. Here is the Christ has arrived. And then Jesus goes even further. This this verse at the end, verse 27, is extraordinary. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus, and he's the perfect man. In one sense, he's given the Sabbath to be Lord over it. But also remember in the Old Testament, the Sabbath is God's. It's his idea. It's instituted by him in creation. It reflects his creating pattern. It's given to Israel as a sign of his love. For Jesus to say he's Lord of the Sabbath is a claim to divinity itself. He's saying the Sabbath is for him, by him, about him. Uh, It's through him. It's under him. So he's the one who interprets the Sabbath law. He's the one who allows it for good and right use like picking the corn. And just like with the bridegroom, we're, we're being pointed forward to eternity. Okay, think about the Sabbath. This, this Sabbath not only points us backwards to forwards, the Sabbath is a, an extraordinary idea in the, in the Bible. Just think the seventh day in Genesis 2 never ends. The promised land is considered Sabbath rest. It has massive overtones. It points us, the Sabbath points us to the end of time. It points us to eternity in the new creation, the true promised land, the heavenly city. Sin and burdens will be no longer. People will be in eternal bliss and worship. So here we not only have the bridegroom of eternity, but we have the Lord of the Sabbath itself, Lord of the new creation, of eternal rest. Okay, The the picture's building, isn't it? And in this last little incident... Uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, Jesus shows us even more about himself with the Sabbath. Uh, so we've seen he's the, the bridegroom, the Lord of the Sabbath. And here in 3, 1 to 6, Jesus is back in the synagogue, and the conflict is getting worse. Okay, The Pharisees are not just questioning him. They want to accuse him now. Um, and here the question is, will Jesus heal a man with uh, with a withered hand? In other words, will he do some work on the Sabbath again? Work's kind of the issue and seemingly break the law. Now, Jesus twists the situation and turns it straight back onto his accusers. Rather than him being in court, in a sense, they are now in the dock. Verse four, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Now, here's the challenge. What is the Sabbath for? He's coming back to the nature of the law. If they say to do good, then of course Jesus can freely heal him. He's doing good. They can't accuse him. But if they say the opposite, to do wrong, to kill, well, of course they can't say that God's made a day to kill on. um, So they sit in silence. You know, Just imagine the awkwardness of it all. I I don't think I would have known quite where to look at this point. Uh, Perhaps there's a few smirks from people who dislike the Pharisees. Um, But Jesus was not smirking, was he? He was absolutely livid with these men. These guardians of the law who are actually trying to prevent good on the Sabbath. So he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And what happens? His hand was restored. Just imagine that from, from this withered hand to full. From diseased to healed. From maybe static to being able to move. From dead to life. What's Jesus come to do? He's come to do good, to bring life, to save. His his reign is not one about layering up laws like heavy sacks on our back, but instead to bring life and salvation. He's the bridegroom. He's the the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the good king. Let me bring these three moments together. The whole picture, Jesus is showing us he's the life-giving Lord. Isn't it? That's what he's showing us. He's the life giving Lord. If you're going to remember anything from today, let it be that. that Jesus is the life giving Lord. That's what this has all been about. He's the one who brings a wedding feast with his presence. He's the one who brings Sabbath rest now and for eternity. He's the one who restores life from what was wrong. What a glorious picture Mark is painting for us. The life giving Lord. So as death lurks in the shadows for us, and it does, whether we're young or old, whether we have, you know, we have no idea what tomorrow will bring, sickness or health, death or life, but but as it lurks, Jesus is showing us he is our true hope in eternity. Eternal life, the wedding feast, the Sabbath rest, it all comes through him. And brothers and sisters, if you are trusting in Jesus today, we, we are united to this Jesus, okay? Isn't that incredible? That means your eternal life is utterly secure. Why? Because this life is Jesus's, okay? Just as sure as the bridegroom will be at the wedding feast, so it is for you, okay? Just as sure as the Lord of the Sabbath will be in the eternal Sabbath rest, so it is for you. So, so whether I die tomorrow or in 50 years' time, my hope is certain because, because I'm with Jesus. I'm trusting him. I'm with him. So if, if fear of death raises its wretched head often in your life, keep turning your eyes to the Lord. Each day remember him. He's the life-giving Lord. And may that future life, that good life, uh, seen in the goodness and gift of God's law, may, may it percolate into our lives now. Eternal life has begun in your heart. Now, that doesn't mean we're in perpetual happiness, does it? No, fasting is still very appropriate. Just as Jesus said, we still mourn. We still grieve. Pain, sin, and death are still realities of our lives. For some of us, deeply so at the moment. But But Jesus has begun a work in us. The new has come. The Lord of Sabbath is doing good. He's bringing life and salvation. Let his identity, let his work sink deep down and start to infiltrate your day, your night. He's he's preparing you for a wedding feast. In a sense, he's cultivating Sabbath rest in us. He's showing us more how to, to let go of sin, let go of guilt, let go of regret. And to look what he's doing. The king is up to. We walk with him step by step, day by day. Rather than trying to keep up an appearance, rather than trying to keep up a facade, we can be real. Because we know the life-giving Lord who forgives sinners. And as we walk with him, perhaps we might see more and more of that life in us. His freedom. His gift of love growing in us. He's a glorious Lord, isn't he? What a vision of him. Jesus, the life-giving Lord. Um, but let's, secondly, let's just turn back to this other group in this section. Uh, the religious leaders, particularly these Pharisees. And as I said, conflict and questioning began all the way back in chapter 2. And it's really grown, hasn't it, by chapter 3. No longer are they sussing him out. They're out to accuse him. And it all ends in some dark turn. Did you know that in verse 6? The Pharisees. Uh, went out and immediately held council with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. It turns into a murderous plot. Rather than the life-giving Lord, we see the life-taking religious. The life-taking religious. Now Mark's showing us a, a group of people who should have been right there with Jesus, shouldn't they? They knew their Bibles. They taught it. They, was, they were seen as godly people. But rather than with him, they're against him. So how do we get here? What's behind their final response? So have a look at three verse five. And Jesus looked round at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of hearts. Why do these men who should have been rejoicing that the bridegroom has arrived, who've been, should have been worshiping the Lord of the Sabbath, why do they want to kill him? It's because of their hearts. Now, at first glance, it seems to be their piety, their kind of what they do religiously that Jesus has challenged. Because his disciples his disciples don't fast as theirs do. His disciples don't keep the Sabbaths as they think they should. And Jesus certainly doesn't keep the Sabbath as they hoped he would. Now, surely that's not a big problem, is it? If it's just their acts of religion, if their acts of religion come from godly motives... They're just people who want to obey God. They want to do good. Then they'll just need gentle instruction and will humbly listen, but not here. Instead, since attacking their piety has led to murder, it reveals something more sinister is going on. There's more beneath the surface. Jesus says they have hard hearts and their hearts bent on power. Remember Jesus' correction of their view of the law that we looked at. They had turned this law that was a gift, in a sense, into a bargaining tool. A bargaining tool with God, a way to come to God on their own terms. You know, fasting, rather than a sign of mourning, mourning of death and sin, it's instead become a sign of their righteousness. Oh, yeah, I fast twice a week, yeah. No, 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 not for my sin, of course not. No, no, just to be good, to to, to do even more than God requires. Well, the Sabbath, rather than a law that's a gift from God, a law providing rest and goods, they've made it a burden They've because they've made it into a work. Don't pluck corn, don't heal. If you don't do all the right things, then you've done it right. They've made it a work, not a gift. These two ways of obeying God, two gifts from God to help people mourn and to rest, they've used as signs of their goodness. Their self-righteousness, their power to have God on their own terms. In, in a sense, they love the, the, the means, fasting and, and Sabbath and their keeping of it, rather than the end, knowing God himself and being with him. And so as Jesus comes, he, he comes as the one who gives life. He's the, the one who's for the sinner. We can come to God, whoever we are, but it's through him. And, and he does that. He takes away the power that they thought they had. So rather than embracing the Lord of life, they try to kill him. They don't want this. They don't want him, the end. They want their power, their, their piety, and their hearts. Their hearts are dead. The life-taking religious. And as Mark explains for us, their, their hearts have been exposed. Because the thing about piety, the thing about the external religion, is it can be a facade, You've probably seen those houses They're beautiful fronts. Okay, they're made to look as if I don't know—they're 100, 200 years old. There's, there's the black wood, there's the white in between, and it's beautiful. People look and stare, and then you just kind of look round the corner, and um, and you see it's just made of breeze blocks. Probably 20 years ago, it's a fake. Okay, the, the facade is hiding uh, the real thing, and that's true of people, isn't it? Now, this can be found in. In non-churchy things, as well as churchy things, you know, in churchy things, there can be definitely a facade of, of piety. Like we, we must celebrate the right things at the right time. Okay, You know, like celebrating pride publicly uh, is an example of that. Or perhaps an environmental piety. We make sure you recycle, you cycle to work, you eat organic, uh, even while you purchase a Range Rover and a bigger house. Or, or, or maybe it's certain qual- uh, qualifications that you have or, or certain hobbies that you have. Whatever it is, we do the right things on the surface, even if underneath things are falling apart. And and it's true in churchy things as well, isn't it? We've got to sing the right songs. We're involved with the right charities. We we read the right authors. We use the right vocabulary. You know, we make sure we've read the Bible. Tick. I've prayed a prayer. Tick. Uh, I've been to the prayer meeting. Tick. I've been to church twice on Sunday. Tick, tick. Uh, I know my definitions of justification, redemption. Tick. And we can do all these things and still we've never actually engaged with the living God himself through Jesus Christ. We love the means, but not the end. We, and it's killing us. We can say the right things, we can do the right things, and our hearts are hearts. Perhaps this will help. Whether, whether you're a Christian or not, okay, if you take away the externals of your life, the things you do, What does your heart actually look like? You know, if I peeled off your layers of activism, of activity, your qualifications, your weekly good deeds, your knowledge of doctrine, what lurks deep beneath? Would it expose a bitter heart, a selfish heart, a proud heart that loves, that's actually lost without its good deeds, a heart that that hides away, afraid of the light? Or does it expose a heart that's humble, a heart that knows it doesn't deserve God's grace, but receives it. A heart that knows its only righteousness is Jesus's. But any good deed is a gift from God anyway, and for his glory. That's challenging, isn't it? Because I, I reckon most of us here, though, we're probably a bit of a mixture, aren't we? We know there are some moments where we just get grace. We, we are so thankful to the Lord. And yet also, we, we know our desire to earn God's favor can creep in. Now, if that's you, which is probably a lot of us, that doesn't mean you're suddenly like full-on, like the Pharisees here wanting to kill Jesus, okay, and under his wrath, okay? No, no, we, seeing sin in our lives is part of our daily repentance. We come back to Jesus, don't we? We come back to the Lord of life. Uh, we keep resting in his love. We keep praying to see more of his spirit change us. We rejoice in his presence. But some of us, the situation may actually be quite serious. Actually, any talk of forgiveness of sinners, any talk of good works, actually being worthless to get to God, any talk of hearts needing Jesus, actually gets you a bit riled deep down. You can feel it deep within. You Christians, you talk about needing Jesus. Well, I don't. I'm fine. I'm a good person. I'm tolerant. I'm welcoming. I'm hardworking. Surely, I'm not perfect, but you're the ones who judge. You're the ones who say this is wrong and this is right. I don't want Jesus or anything to do with him. Well, if that's you this morning, please can I encourage you to take another look at this Jesus. This Jesus who came to bring life, not to kill it. Who came to save, not to destroy. Because if that's true about Jesus... You actually need to let go of your power and your control, your desire to make God love you. Instead, we follow Jesus. In a sense, hand over the keys of your life to him, the bridegroom, the Lord of the Sabbath, the good king, the life-giving Lord. Because with him, with him there's salvation, with him there's forgiveness, and there's eternal life. Amen.